Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This is our first episode of Everyday Strong What? C.B. Baker and Dr. Michael G. Daniels, the pastor of Enoch Baptist Church. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about um, leadership, but before we get into that, we like to, me and Dr. Daniels, like to sit here and have a brief discussion on why we wanted to do this. Um, you know, I, you, I, I do the Conquer Dreams podcast and Conquer Dreams system with helping people out in the mentoring. And of course, Dr. Daniels being a pastor of the church. That, you know, my pastor, we decided to get together and say, you know what, we could do something together that would real, really benefit um, everyone, and not just the people in our congregation, but everybody. And I felt like this was a, a good move and a good opportunity to be able to reach the masses and, and also help people. What do you think, Dr. Daniels? Uh, you're right on target, because there's so many people that are uncomfortable in a church environment. Uh, but the the wisdom that comes from um, what 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 is espoused in churches is beneficial to everyone. And so, even though their faith may not be the same, they still can benefit from from that wisdom, from that knowledge that you can get from those concepts, because those concepts are good no matter what your faith. Uh, if you practice them the way they were intended to be practiced. Yes, which good segue into our subject, and which is. Everybody that I encounter that comes that comes to me, you know, uh, leadership wise, they want to look at different leadership books and everything. And I never forget a, a brief conversation we had years ago, Dr. Daniels. He says, you know, why don't you just turn to the Bible? Everything is in there. And I got to think, I said, you're right. The greatest leadership book ever written was the Bible. And, but no one really seeks that out first. They always go like, I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble and see what they got out here on teamwork, on leadership, how to be a leader. But everything is right there in the Bible. So why do you think we don't turn to that first? You know, it's, it's the irony of it is, is that um, if you look at the greatest leaders that people look up to, uh, especially if you go back to, um, you know, the period of time uh, um, B.C., most of those leaders were individuals that are chronicled in the Bible. Uh, for example, if you ask the average person who's the smartest individual or the wisest individual they know, oftentimes they'll say Solomon. Now, they may not be uh, of the Christian faith. They may not even be the Hebrew faith. But that, that, that the feeling that Solomon was a wise man, you know, is, is wrapped in all of us. If you look at great kings and, and, and you ask folk, you know, who's one of the greatest kings that ever lived? People will say King David, uh, and certainly he was a, a great leader. And, and so um, even if you look at, um, let's say, Christianity, for example, if you look at Christianity, you have to ask yourself one simple question. What one man do you know that has been able to spread a message so simple to so many millions of people? Obviously, in order for him to do that, there was a system that he had to employ, and that was a great leadership system because he did not employ technical people. He did not employ people that were the greatest minds of the time. In fact, his apostles, for most people, would say they were pretty much uh, regular people, were not uh, highly educated, but yet look at what they accomplished. Uh, so that in, in and of itself would suggest that um, if you look at those um, individuals that are uh, in the Bible, 
they had wonderful leadership skills and they were taught well uh, by those that came before them. But unfortunately, we uh, get caught up in the messenger. And so we don't really right. want to digest the message. Yeah. You know, I, when I'm doing something and, and I'm trying to lead my companies in a, a different direction and people are complaining, I have to often remind myself People complained to Moses even after he freed them from the Pharaoh. People complained about Jesus. So if they're going to complain to those two people, what what makes me feel like they shouldn't complain <laughs> against me? So I got to put things in perspective. And what those stories told me too, Pastor, is that no matter what you're doing as a leadership position, People are going to complain. But if you're doing the right thing, matter of fact, they'll complain all the way up to the end. You know, and we all, you know, you know, I always I loved the movie coming up as a kid, Ten Commandments. And they, and they literally complained all the way from the time they was leaving all the way till they got there. Then when he went up the mountain, they were still complaining, you know, why he was gone. It was just really um, this baffling to me that I'm going to ask you this question. Why do you think people complain so much when a leader is trying to lead them somewhere? Well, if you if you look at the, um, the if you look at the, the incident you just referred to with Moses, for example, um, their complaining was because their idea of how he should lead them was not their idea. Now they they wanted to get to the land that was promised to them, but their concept was there was a different way to get them there. And most people oftentimes fail to understand that the leader, uh, if if his way was their way, they wouldn't need him in the first place. And so leaders rarely, if ever, think like those that are following them uh, because it just doesn't add up when you really think about it. But if you also look at what Moses did, I wouldn't say Moses, but 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 the but who he was being led by um, showed him <clears throat> what he needed to do to get cohesiveness within the group. And Jesus was the same way. If you if you look at the Gospels and you read the Gospels and you study them strictly from a leadership perspective, here's what you find. If you have people that are in a disarray in your organization, let's say, and you want them to come together, the quickest way to get them to come together is to give them a common enemy. And so when you look at the Gospels, that's what that's what you get. There were a group of people that were all in disarray. They were all over the place in their belief systems. But Jesus helped them to appreciate that they have a common enemy. And once they saw they had a common enemy, they came together. And they may not have agreed on everything, but at least they accepted the methodology that he gave them to get where they wanted to go. And the same thing with Moses. Once when they, when they initially left Egypt, they didn't view themselves as having a common enemy. You know, actually, they didn't view Pharaoh as an enemy. But once they got out and Moses showed them that they had a common enemy, that their fight was not against him, their fight was not against God, but their fight was against those forces in the countries that they were surrounded by, they began to get cohesive. And in fact, as they continued on their journey, what we find is once they realized that, they rarely fought within themselves anymore and were exactly and really were sad when Moses did not continue on with them. Yeah, so, you know, in leadership, you know, with, with, with dealing with people complaining, and, um, 
and you study in the Bible like you do. Um, so what areas should we look at in the Bible to really, if we're trying to, we're getting a new leadership position at work or we're volunteering somewhere at a church or at the, um, um, the mission, local mission, how, what things in the Bible can we look at to help us in that first 90 day transition of us being a leader? I would say uh, if you if you look at the Gospel of John, to me, that probably is the book in the Bible that is the clearest in how to be a good leader. Uh, in, in, in the Gospel of John, the first thing Jesus did was is that he observed those individuals that had the qualities or we would call the knowledge, skills and abilities to to get the job accomplished. And it didn't matter that they 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 it wasn't as important to him that they understood where he was coming from. He just looked for those individuals that had those skills that he needed. Once he gathered those folk together, he embarked on a, a training program. And, and we don't always look at what he did as training, but it was. It was on-the-job training. And in fact, they, they were with him uh, uh, 24 hours a day almost. And so they went to, through an intense training program. Uh, and then when, they, when he did train them, he didn't just leave them there. Then he sent them out uh, to, to practice that which he had taught them. And then when they came back, he evaluated them. Now, oftentimes when we evaluate our employees, we evaluate them at the end of the year as if that's really going to be uh, productive right, for right. them. But it's not. He evaluated them immediately after they did the task. And so they, com- they had conversations right away so he could point out their strong points, their weak points, and those kind of things. And then he would take them with him. And he would do what he had told them to do. And then they could discuss what he did and how he did it. And so that kind of repetitiveness, that kind of on-the-job training instilled things in them that would allow them to be better at their job. But it also what it did for him was he understood their weaknesses because he was right there with them when they was doing the task. So oftentimes what we do as leaders, and, and you know, and since we are the leaders, we have to kind of blame ourselves if things don't work right. Right. We as leaders oftentimes don't appreciate that all employees have weaknesses because all we want to do is concentrate on forcing them to deal with their strengths. But you have to balance that out. And as a good leader, once you appreciate the weaknesses of your employee or anyone who's following you, whether it be volunteers or what have you, you have to appreciate the fact that I should never ask you to do more than what your skills allow you to do. And if your weaknesses are highlighted in any endeavor, I should not uh, try to make you feel inadequate just because you have that weakness. In fact, my job as your manager or my or your leader is to give you tasks where whatever weaknesses you have won't impact what I'm trying to get you to do. Dealing with difficult people, you know, we always encounter, like you always talk about in the pulpit, them, them folk. You know, you got them folk on, on the job. And you always say that, them folk on the job. Now, as a leader, I've always found that I can see those folk, Pastor, messing around or trying to undermine the thing that the good person is doing, the good employee is doing. The issue is, what happens when the person that's undermining the good employee is also very productive? So... How do we handle 
that, which I call the I call that the T.O. syndrome, the Terrell Owens syndrome. He's doing real good on the field, but he's causing a lot of issues amongst the rest of the players. Right. So right. And so what you're really referring to is that individual that is uh, not the official leader, right? Is the unofficial, <laughs> unofficial <laughs> the leader. Unofficial leader. Right. That's, That's what right. everyone really, really deals with. Well, again, you know, if you consider how Jesus did things, because he had um, some unofficial leaders as well, and, and so the way Jesus looked at things was simple, uh, and that is, uh, and, and and if you look at the way we categorize them, you can say there are either there are two types of issues that we deal with. There are quality quantity problems, right? Or they are rule breakers. And those really are the only areas that you really have to deal with. Now, so let's say the person is a rule breaker, like some of the folk in Jesus's clan were. Judas, for example, was a rule breaker. And so because he was a rule breaker, Jesus did what you do with rule breakers. You put them out. <laughs> you know, right. He said straightforward, Judas, I know you, what you're going to do is break a rule. So go ahead, do what you got to do, and we're going to move on without you. Uh, because people that break your rules are, are saying that they want to be you. They want to be in charge. And in fact, the Bible talks about that same kind of entity when it talks about Satan. When the Bible says that Lucifer or Satan, he looked around and made a decision. He said, I can be God myself. I don't have to go by his rules. And in fact, what Satan did was he tried to get other angels to follow him. Now, was he a good angel as far as his productivity? Of course, the Bible tells us that Lucifer was the top angel in the kingdom. Uh, so he would be very productive, as you just right, said. Right. But his thought process is he could run the show. And so he wanted people to follow him. But since he was a rule breaker, God said, OK, you got to go. So simple as that. Now, if it's a quantity quality problem, again, Jesus faced that, too, with his apostles. What he looked at is, why is that a problem? Is it a problem because I haven't trained you properly? Or is it a problem because I'm asking you to do more than what you are capable of doing? And he had that with different uh, uh, apostles. So for the ones that it was a measure of training, then what he did uh, was he brought them closer to him and he gave them more hands-on training to get them where he needed them to go. For those apostles that he realized their skills and abilities were not there, he modified what they were supposed to do. So rather than them being leaders, as you would have expected all of the apostles to be leaders, some of them never became true leaders. And he just made them subject to the ones who had those skills that he needed to move uh, the movement forward. So one thing I'm picking up here is in order to, number one, in order to be a good leader, you still have to be down there with the masses and training and, and helping them and coaching them. You know, it's really kind of, it's really similar to what you were saying, what John did was like a head coach, you know, working with the players, working with your team down there. You can't just say, give me this report and it goes sit back at your desk. Does the person know how to do the report? Does the person know what kind of report, how do you, how you like it? You got to tell them something. Yes, people come in with degrees, you know, from different universities, um, you know, so-called. And I say the word so-called prestigious universities because I've employed some people that came from some angle called no universities names out on, on, on this show. But I'm like, how did you graduate from this place? But you have to still coach them through those those moments like that or you won't get the the, the desired result that you want. 
So one question I want to ask you, Pastor, is how does the Bible handle things for people who do something and work real hard to achieve something, but don't get the result that they wanted and they get depressed and want to quit? What is the the motivation that, you know, that that the Bible talks about it to keep going? Well, here is the thing. Um, and um, I, I'm going to uh, do that by giving you a quick story that was in the Bible, if you don't mind. There was an incident in the Bible where there was a gentleman that uh, had a son and his son um, had, was possessed. And the scriptures say he was possessed so such that he would throw himself on the ground, throw himself into fires, tear his clothes off. He fought with his father and those kind of things. So when the father sees the apostles, he asked them, can you come and can you you heal my son. Well, the apostles are unable to do that. And they've had all the training. They know how to do it, but they're unable to do it. And so when Jesus comes, he says to Jesus, you know, I've, I've, I've told you, ask your apostles to help me. They can't do it. Can you do it? And so Jesus, he speaks to the demon and the demon goes away. Now, the apostles, they are just uh, uh, stymied because they can't figure out why is it we couldn't do what you did? And Jesus says to them, because these only come out through fasting and prayer. So his point to them was this. The reason why you aren't able to do this is because you didn't fully understand the instructions that I gave you. And so even though you thought you were applying them correctly, you were not. Because if you followed exactly what I told you, you'd have gotten the results that I wanted you to get. So then the question becomes, why is it... it, that our employees or those who are following us sometimes don't get the desired result when we have given them instruction. I, I, I say this, if I tell you how to measure and I give you the ruler and you come out with a wrong measurement, that's either because I didn't train you properly on how to measure or I gave you a defective ruler. Right. And if I didn't give you a defective ruler, then that means I didn't train you properly. So what Jesus did, he went back and he showed them again how to do what he wants to do. Because any process, especially if it's a process driven function, any process should be replicated. So if I can replicate, if I can do it, then that means anybody can do it because it can be replicated. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned uh, also about, well, what about the supervisor who doesn't stay in the trenches? I think that's why it's important to stay in the trenches. It's important because I really need to see you do what I've asked you to do, because if I don't see you do it, I really don't really know if you followed my instruction or if you did what you thought was best to get the desired result. And especially, as you say, if I went to a university and my university taught me a certain thing, then I'm apt to apply what a university taught me rather than what you just said, because my assumption is both will get me the desired results when oftentimes both won't. Right. You know, quite often, um, you know, when I mentor people, I say, you're going to get a result. Either way, you're going to get a result. It's the desired result that you're really trying to get when you're doing something. And as and I say that you need to prepare for your desired result. And if you don't get the result, let's go back and look at what you did, and especially if you've taken good notes of what you've done. You should be able to tweak things, you know, and uh, pastor, because I come from a sports background. So I always try to make sure that when I tell people or lead something, we have a scoreboard that we can literally see that is as live as possible. And you can see the results coming in as you're doing what you need to do. So you could tweak it if something is not 
going right. Um, listening and, and then looking at the story of Jesus, uh, Moses and, and other uh, great leaders in the Bible, I always see things where they always had to tweak something, you know, or something would come up. You say, okay, well, I could go this way, right or left. People need to understand that you don't just wake up, pray, and then go to work and everything is going to be fine. You're going to have to do some tweaking or some things that, you know, that's going to come along. Right. And, and I'll say this, that the tweaking, generally speaking, is because we don't implement perfection. It's not because the directions aren't perfect. And that's one of the things I think people have to appreciate is that we tend to think that because we don't get a perfect outcome, that the directions that the Bible gives is imperfect. And that's not the case. We just don't implement them perfectly. That's the case. And so the tweaking has to always be to us and not what that direction is. And, and I, I tell you, from from a managerial standpoint, you know, because, you know, I've been both manager in the public sector as well as, you know, uh, church, is that oftentimes what people who are not the leaders do is that they assume that the problem lies with the directions and not with their ability to implement the directions. And so, the, you, you, you know, you, they want to be they need to be careful in going back and saying, let me look at and make sure I implement them correctly. And, and from a leadership standpoint uh, as well, um, just another side note, um, you know, because uh, I think it's a, a, a great uh, thing for people to consider is that oftentimes we don't put the the uh, back we don't put the energy in as leaders to implementing our greatest resource. You know, we're taught in school, you know, if you go to any business school, they always tell you that human capital is your greatest resource. But we don't devote the time to human capital that we devote to other forms of capital. You know, the, the average company uh, doesn't consider their human resource officer to be the, the, the key to the organization's growth. Right, right. They consider the chief financial officer <laughs> right. uh, to be the one that's key to, to the growth. And so we, what we leverage, in my opinion, doesn't go hand in hand with what the Bible teaches us. See, the Bible teaches us that it's not the CFO that should be the most important uh, person on your payroll, but your human resource officer should be the most important person on your payroll. And so if we start to view our human capital the way the Bible views human capital, we will start to get more of the outcomes uh, and more of the productivity that we're looking for. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I usually, I always sign on the human resources side of things is training the staff, training people, and not only the training part, but also to make sure that they're happy. Because if you got a happy person, they're going to, of course, they're going to produce more than a sad person. You know, getting to know the, the the employee as well as your customers. If you're dealing in a situation where you have a lot of customers and you're a salesman, knowing your customers and making sure they're, you know, happy, quote unquote, and OK with the service and providing value to them is a very good thing to thing that you need to follow, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember, remember what Jesus did with his apostles. He looked at what their needs were first, not the needs of his organization, because he already knew the needs of his organization. It's what are the needs of my apostles? And he dealt with their needs first. And there's a good reason behind that, because if I 
understand the needs of my staff, let's say. And if I am able to supply their needs, then they feel loyal to me. Not only do they feel a sense of loyalty, but they feel so connected that they don't ever want to leave. Even when they're offered higher paying jobs, something within says my needs are getting met here. And people literally are uncomfortable leaving an organization that meets their needs. And so if you have good people and you're meeting their needs, you will be able to get so much out of them that other folk cannot get out of them because they feel so loyal to you and they feel like you're really doing so much for them that they will bend over backwards to make sure that they make you happy. Yeah, the one the one thing that is a cure-all for high turnover rate is looking at what you're doing and say, okay, what do the employees need? Provide it. And then all of a sudden you see your turnover rate start to, you know, stymie and stop and people stay there. Um, I've had employees been with me for years and have some people that flipped out really early. You know, I've had it both I had it both ways. And I can usually tell when I had employees that flipped out real early because I got away from, I ended up being more of a CEO than running the HR department. Um, what I did before was I was more marketing HR when I came up through the, my family owned business, I was marketing HR, everything was good. And then when I flipped over to CEO, I couldn't do those things as much anymore. And I could see the difference when I'm not, when I'm involved in stuff like that versus when I'm not involved in it, the, the company does suffer a little bit, but I'm going to ask you this question, pastor. So how does one balance the the acting in a small business, so to speak, not in a big business, a small business where, yeah, you ought to see the CEO and your um, your human resources department is more like is more or less an assistant to you than it is an HR department. But you got so much you got to do as a CEO. What's your advice? What's the Bible advice? on how to be able to juggle that to be to make sure that the staff and your employees are well taken care of as well as your customers. See, you know, and I think that is the dilemma that most small businesses face, you know, and and let me say this because I've managed variety. You know, I've managed currently I have about uh, 20 employees that I deal with. Um, I've also managed as little as three employees. Uh, I've also managed an organization where I had over 100 employees. So, you know, so I've, I've, I've did the gamut. Right. Uh, uh, basically. And, 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 and through subordinate employees have, you know, overseeing more than that at times. Here's the key. Jesus always viewed himself as a human resource officer first. See, that was it. It wasn't I'm a CFO first. It wasn't right. I'm a CEO first. It's, it's my job first is to deal with those under me and make sure their needs are met. If you look at, you know, how whenever he would bring individuals into his company, uh, uh, I'm saying company, not organization, but company into his presence. The first thing he did was make sure that their needs were met. Uh, because that's what's so important. So if, if that's my goal is to have a great product, if I don't have great people, I cannot produce a good product. That's right. Whether it's a service or whether it's a commodity, no matter what it is. So if I always view myself as the person that's there to develop talent, that's my job, to develop talent, to develop talent. And that's what Jesus did. If you really think about it, that's all he did. Well, I shouldn't say all. That's minimizing right. it. But from a managerial standpoint, if I was going to study him in a, in a management class, 
his priority was developing talent, you know, and that's what he did. And so if I do it that way, it doesn't just work in a small business. It works in my home, too. <laughs> you, know, it, right. you know, if I'm leading my home, if, if, if I'm just saying, let me develop talent, because if you think about it, if you are a, a father, you're a leader, you know, and if you're a single parent, you're a leader, you know. So the same concepts work. So let's just break it down and say, what if I'm in my home and I'm I am the leader? Then what's my job? Same thing to develop the talent. So I look at my children and say, my job is to develop their talents, whatever their talents may be. Right. The problem is we don't look to develop our t- children's talents. We look to tell them what talents they have. <laughs> so, but, but let me find out whether I'll develop their talents. The same thing with my spouse. You say, I know I may have expectations, let's say, of what she should be doing. But just because I think she should be doing them don't mean that's where her talents lie. So once I see what her talents are, my job is to help develop those talents. And if I do that, that person is happy because everyone feels good when they're at their best. Right. And so that, that everyone's happy. The same thing, again, with my employees. If I'm developing their talent first, I'm going to get high productivity. And if I'm getting high pro- productivity, I don't need to be CEO anymore. <laughs> Right. It, it, it will run itself. Uh, one of the things I learned a long time ago, and I will give credit to one of my professors, and if you don't mind, I'm going to shout out to Old Dominion University. Uh, <laughs> one of my professors there, Dr. Yoakum, which I thought was a great instructor. He was an econ instructor. Here's what he said to me. You don't manage good employees. You support them. You manage poor employees to either develop them or to get rid of them. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, because, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear the saying that your bottom 10 percent takes up most of your time. You know, whether or not your, your C players, or your D players that you got, if you was a force ring people, they're going to take up most of your time as a leader because you're trying to get them to perform better. Now, at the same token, the flip side of that coin, most of the people in, in the experts in the leadership will say, when you're doing that, your A players are the ones that are suffering because they're not getting support or getting the the training to get better. So they usually come in, okay, I'm able to see that you're doing good. You got it down packed, but I'm not there to focus on you anymore because now I got to focus on the C player to try to bring or D player to try to bring one to a C so they don't get fired. But then meanwhile, the A player says, well, if I'm doing all this. And I'm getting the same amount of money as homeboy is not doing anything. Well, I'm going to stop doing stuff. Right. Now, isn't it hard? Because you, you're absolutely right. It, you know, most management books say the same thing. Right. Isn't it odd that the Bible says the opposite? That the Bible does not say you focus on that 10 percent. It doesn't say that at all. It says you focus on those other individuals when you're dealing with leaders. You know, for example, when you read the Bible, how many times do you read about the D players? You don't. I know. See, you don't. <laughs> you read about the A players. Right. You know, you know, when you Jesus had more than 12, 12 disciples. He had more than 12. He had thousands of followers. He had thousands of disciples. But you don't read about them. As a matter of fact, you don't even read about all 12. You read about those disciples that were the top performers. Because that's who he gave the most attention to. We just say the opposite. But 
That's not what he did. When you give all your attention to that bottom 10%, what you're telling people is that the squeaky wheel really does, really should get all the grease. Right. And we all know we don't like that. Right. You know, we don't want the squeaky wheel to get the grease, but yet that's why we say it. And so it kind of become ingrained in us. That's not what the Bible does. Jesus focused on those performers that were doing great. Those are the ones he pushed out. Those are the ones he worked the hardest with. Those are the ones he gave more responsibility to, but also the ones he gave great reward to. And that's not to say that he just did not look at the other ones or didn't pay the other ones attention. Yes, he did. But the people that were in his inner circle were the ones that were the highest producing people, the ones that did the most. They spent the most time with him. And for them, spending time with Jesus was the reward. So he was giving them bigger rewards than he was giving the the poor performers. Uh, you know, uh, to use those analogies, right? Uh, there will be some people out there, I'm sure, that are Bible scholars that will say, "How can you call those other apostles poor performers?" <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you compare, you know, Bartholomew to to Peter, there's a big difference, you know, in in the coverage and and what they did and how they did things. Right. And certainly, all would have to recognize that Peter got most of the attention. And if you read the apostles, if you read the Bible, you can see. Uh, he's spoken of more than any of the other 12. If you look at Paul, he's spoken of more than some of the other 12 because they were great performers. High tide raises all boats, right? So even if your top players are playing well, even your C players and your D and your D players are going to get better just off top. One thing I, I, I noticed is if you take and you say, okay, I'm going to get everyone better. Not just focus on the bottom 10%. If you say, I'm going to focus on the whole team and get everybody individually better, then if a person that's a C or D player, they're going to naturally fall off anyway because they'll either quit or they will get terminated because they're not able to keep up with the pace of everything. Um, Case in point, there's plenty of players that when I went to Oklahoma that won't own the team three or four years after that. Okay, or even within that same season, there was a bunch of there was a bunch of freshmen that came in with me, but they weren't there when the season started, right? Because they couldn't they couldn't make it. I'm talking even scholarship players. So stuff, you know, people fall off, and then and then you take your time and you hone in on the people that are really doing the good job for you, right? And 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 absolutely, and again, and your point is so well taken. And that same thing is evident when you look at, again, the scriptures, is that everyone that started off with him didn't stay with him. And for various reasons, some because, as he would say, um, that let them have an ear here, because that meant that some people just felt that it was too much for them, that they couldn't digest all the concepts, not that they couldn't understand them, but they didn't they weren't comfortable applying them. So for them. We're not going to, you know, go, go this route. But as you pointed out, it didn't mean his teaching didn't get to everybody. You know, he taught everybody. He was willing to make sure that everyone had a great understanding. Uh, and he wanted to keep motivating everybody to move forward. But everybody's not going to stay on board anyway. You, right. know, uh, you know, we used to have a saying uh, back when I was uh, managing the government that the train is going to leave the station. (laughs) You know, it's your choice whether you get on or not. Right. Now, the beauty of Christ is this. 
what he taught us was slightly different. He said the train is going, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, and, and using uh, uh, my, my own words, that the train will leave the station, whether you're on it or not. But with Jesus, he gives you an opportunity to run and catch up at the next stop and get back <laughs> on the train. Right, right. So, so, so he says that the door will always open for you if you get back in line. And, and to me, that's what makes a good leader. A good leader has to accept that, you know what, uh, a person may start out with me and they may not be the best that I think they can be. And they may just not want to apply themselves. But as time progresses, they may step back and say, I wish I had of went ahead and did what I was told to do. And if I see that that person genuinely um, uh, has what it takes and, and, and that person genuinely wants to do well, I should not just say, I'm done with you. You can't come back to my organization because of this right. or that, this or that. Because oftentimes youth makes uh, bad mistakes. Sometimes old people make bad mistakes too. But it doesn't mean they can't get back in line and be very productive. And, and here's what I have found just personally, that giving a person a second chance sometimes makes them a better employee than the person that I didn't need to give a second chance to. Right. Yeah, you're right, because I've, I've had people that they went out to see that and found out that the grass isn't green on the other side. And they say, you know what, CB, you know, you know, can I come back and work for you? I said, okay. You know, yeah, I was hard on you, but I was hard on you for a reason. Right. You know, I was trying to make you better. You know, but you went somewhere else and found out, you know, that it ain't, it ain't done that way. You know, they didn't they didn't mind that they, they did mind that your child was sick all the time. And it was like, well, you can't miss but so many days because your child is sick. But when you was with me and I knew your child's name, you know, it's like, OK, little Johnny's sick today. Go ahead. Take, you know, take a half a day. I'll leave early. Go take get him out of school. No problem. People don't understand. Like when you go to um, I call him Mr. Charlie. When you go work with Mr. <laughs> Charlie, Mr. Charlie, like, well, you, you know, that was a half a day. You know, you got now you got four more days like that. And then on the fifth one, you're out the door. You know, they're not willing to work with you a little bit. And and I tell people that Mr. Charlie has a whole different um, ball game. And, and, and this is maybe another uh, topic for another podcast, which is um, why do people and let's go ahead and call it what it is, Pastor. Why do African-Americans, our folk, treat an African-American company? Different than they treat Mr. Charlie's company, the white, the white man. I, I never understood that. You, you're right. That's a that, that's a <laughs> that's a different podcast. And you know, actually, I was um, talking to some folk about that earlier today. Uh, it's his. It is a cultural thing that has been ingrained in us based on our history. And, and you're right. It is. It, it probably would take us an hour and a half to really digest it. Um, but um, just in brief. Um, a part of it comes from how we were treated, not during slavery, but immediately following slavery, mm. immediately following the Reconstruction era, and how we were positioned in this country um, by individuals that, for economic reasons, not, not because they were mad at us because we were free now, uh, although some were. I'm not right. minimizing that, but I'm saying for the most part, it was economics. And because of those economics, um, it caused us to view ourselves differently than we viewed other folk. Right. And that's unfortunate. But like you say, uh, you know, I, I, 
it, it, it would take us a, a, a segment to right. do, do that. Uh, but I, you know, one thing you you, you said um, um, that uh, kind of struck me as you were talking um, was about about staff, not just not just about um, people who treat us as African Americans. If you're in a, working for African American, but what about people that are working for you that have uh, some of your DNA for whatever reason, <laughs> right? Family <laughs> members, yes. Family members, yes. And, and, and those folk, uh, which the Bible does address too. Jesus addressed that as well, because they can be um, uh, pretty difficult to, yes. to deal with. Number one, as a, as a manager, you, you feel kind of obligated to help your folk out because they are related to you. Uh, but by the same token, because they're related to you, they try to take advantage of you too. So, right. so you know, I don't know how, how your company deals with nepotism. Um, but how we're built on it. We're family owned business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I've, and I've, after I've told family members past, I was like, I can't hire you. And he was like, why? I said, because I don't want to fire you. Mm-hmm. I said, I like the way it is between me and you right now. You know, we don't have to, we could go to the cookout on 4th of July and I had to look at each other side-eyed. You know, I got family members now that do that, that work for me, that I've had to fire. Then when the, then when the cookout come up, you know, they're looking at me like, there he go. You know, never mind the fact that they didn't do what I asked them to do and I gave them a thousand chances. But you, you have that dynamic. And I, and I, and you'll, you'll hear people say, don't work with family. And, and I say back to them is, when I go to the hair shop. I see the Asian people in there working. I see, and, and they got the little girl in there. And then all of a sudden you see her, you know, you watch her grow up and then now she's working in there. You go to the, you go to the Italian restaurant, a guy back there making the pizza. He got a son in there making the pizza. He's got his cousins in there making pizza. Now I ain't, you know, I'm not into the dynamics to find out whether or not they're, you know, getting along, but they're in there working inside the business you know, catering towards each other and building up their own economy within themselves. But then when you get the black people, you hear, I can't work for family. Oh no, I won't do that. Now, Grant, I've now pastor, I will say this. I've, you know, I've had my times dealing with family, but I don't think I would do it any other way now because it has really helped our family, you know, empire, quote unquote, grow. You know, so what what is your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, here's what I this his again. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the scripture if that's okay. That's fine. Um, there was an incident where Jesus was um, um, had been talking with some folk and his mother and his siblings were looking for him, and some some someone says to Jesus, "Your mother and your siblings are outside looking for you." And Jesus' response to them was, "Well, who is my brother?" And who is my sister? Who is my mother? But him that does the will of my father. So now if I take that concept and apply it to business, then that would mean this. Who is it that I really consider my relative? Is it based on the DNA or is it based on the one that's willing to foster the kind of business that they know I'm in? So so do I hire you just because we have DNA and you call me my brother? Or do I hire you because you're doing the will of my father, who is the one that founded this business? <laughs> and so if I use Jesus' approach, then I'm only obligated to hire kinfolk when their mindset is the same 
as my mindset, which is I'm following the rules and regulations based on the one that established this business, which is our, you know, our father or our uncle or whoever that relative is. And then that kind of sets the playing field up, because if I'm only hiring people that are willing to honor those rules, I don't have that issue with folk thinking that I should give them a cut and they should be right. able to come to work an hour late and take a 30 minute, you know, uh, uh, leave whenever they get ready to smoke a cigarette or run to 7-Eleven, pay a bill because they understand that the rules apply to them just like they apply to me because we're all under the same guidelines. Right. Well, this has been a good first uh Episode of Everyday Strong, I, I must say. We, we really got in there. We got some really good stuff for people. Um, Pastor, what you got going on uh, the next coming weeks? Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm excited about. Uh, this Wednesday, we're going to be having a, what we call a Black uh, uh, Black History um, in, Initiative celebration. And the focus is not going to be on the typical um, heroes that we look at, you know, and I'm not not saying that they are not important, but we also have to take a look at those individuals that don't get credit for what they have done. So that's what we're going to be looking at and talking about those those blacks that built America, those ones that were an instrument in building railroads and and the infrastructure, not because they necessarily wanted to, but because they were forced to you know, based on the prevailing laws of the land and how that impacted us today and how it will impact us tomorrow if we don't recognize how we got where we are. What time is that on Wednesday? That's going to be on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock at Enoch Baptist Church. And we certainly welcome all those that are listening. If you are in uh, uh, transporting distance uh, from us by car or by train or by plane, (laughs) come on out and uh, and join us. All right. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Everyday Strong with Dr. Michael G. Daniels and C.B. Baker. Till next time. 